Welcome back to the Naked Security Podcast. I am not Kimberly Trung. I'm Doug Ameth. Kim is off this week, gallivanting around, having a good time. She'll be back next week. My recommendation this week is the it's a documentary called The Mystery of D.B. Cooper on HBO, if you have access to HBO. It is fascinating. If you know the D.B. Cooper story, it's the only uh, hijacking case in American history that hasn't been solved. And it takes you through four different suspects, each who look just like the composite drawing of D.B. Cooper and the stories of their families and how they're grappling with thinking that this... Is that the guy who exited the back of, was it a Boeing 707? Yeah, he jumped out over the uh, wilds of Oregon and has never been found. So there's a lot of kind of compelling evidence and stuff like that. Great, great little, it's a short 87-minute documentary. Great, uh, very interesting if you're into that kind of stuff. Apparently those those planes got a little flap added, uh, air-operated flap on the outside was the retrofit that stops the stairs being opened unless the plane is stationary. <laughs> so when it's flying, you can't open the stairs because obviously there's not much point. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was it, that and the fascinating part about like the late 70s, early 80s when this stuff was going on, there's just no airport security. You just walk right in. So this guy yeah. walked in with the bomb in his briefcase. Anyway. Because there are other cases where people did exactly the same thing, but they their mortal remains were found on the ground afterwards, weren't there? Uh, but where, where he landed, was it in Oregon or Washington or something? It's basically like good luck good luck pinpointing anything without a without a a beacon of a radio transmitting beacon of some sort yes which makes the suspects in this uh documentary the four different suspects interesting because a couple of them had uh prior military experience and jumping out of planes and stuff like that so a lot of a lot of good stuff good but wasn't he wearing a suit yeah you think if you had experience of the of the oregon backwoods in winter you might at least take a jumper with you. <laughs> exactly. So that's why this is if so you, fascinating. If you were bailing out. Yeah, at, it was in November. At... It was raining. It was, you know, eight o'clock at night. Yeah, just dark and all that stuff. So that voice you hear to my physical left, albeit 3,204 miles from me, is Paul Ducklin. Paul, how you doing? You got any recommendations for the good people? I do. Uh, don't take this the wrong way. The, the band's name is unfortunate, but I love the music they produce. They only have one album on Bandcamp, but there's there's a live video they did last year because they can't perform live in lockdown. So recorded in the studio. They are called uh, Dead Otter. Hmm. Um, and they come from uh, Glasgow in Bonnie, Scotland. And uh, you can see them chatting if you go and watch the live video they did. They have a, an album on Bandcamp called Bridge of Weird. And, uh, you know, instrumental I, not quite doom. I don't know what how you describe it. Um, Post doom, space rock, not quite. Excellent programming music. I didn't know what to expect when I first listened to it, and I have been back many times. Check them out on Bandcamp. Uh, we'll tease the oh no real quick. Let's just say this help desk person kept having another manic Monday over and over again. We'll get to that at the end of the show. But first, the headlines. We're going to talk about Keybase. The secure messaging app fixes a photo leaking bug, so patch now, and then we're going to talk about copyright scams. But first, fun fact. In March of 2011, a 32-round online gaming competition was held. The game being played was StarCraft. The prizes for the competition were as follows. $500 to first place, $250 to second, $150 to third, 
$100 the fourth. And if you came in between fifth and eighth place, you got the paltry sum at the time of 25 Bitcoins apiece. <laughs> the problem is, like, wouldn't you have spent them 20 times already? If you, you would have spent it a thousand times over. But if you didn't, yeah. today's value would be roughly or $1.25 million for those 25 Bitcoins. I mean, when they got to $10, when they had any value at Seriously, all, you'd go, yeah. wow. 10 bucks. Yep. I can get a pizza for that. I can get two pizzas, three pizzas. How amazing. That's when you hope you, you never cracked open that digital wallet and you finally found the password 10 years later. Yeah. And now you're 48,000 US dollars per Bitcoin today, I do believe. Sitting on some good uh, money. Yeah. And, and that, that crazy volatility, like you wouldn't care about that if when you got them, they were worth 0 0.01 cents, would you? Yeah. <laughs> It's like hardly matters. Exactly. Yeah, it was. Uh, wow. It was one of the sponsors was like a Bitcoin casino, and they're like, "We'll we'll put up these twenty five <laughs> bitcoins a piece." It was some dodgy casino that was uh, one of the sponsors giving out these bitcoins. What a time to be alive! Let's talk about Keybase now. We'll, we'll we'll touch on what Keybase is, but at a higher level, this is an interesting look at the specific stages of encryption. And as you said in the article. This is a great adage, Paul. There's many a slip betwixt the cup and the lip. Uh, yes, the problem was it, it was in a program called Keybase. Uh, some of our listeners may use it. It's not the most popular instant messaging service, but it seems to be growing quite popularly. Lately, it's actually owned by Zoom, more famous for their teleconferencing software. And it's basically one of the many messaging and file storage, file locker services that promise end-to-end -end encryption which is where your data isn't just encrypted for each hop of its travel along the network and maybe decrypted and re-encrypted every time as it jumps between providers, uh, that it's actually encrypted basically before it leaves the app or before it leaves your browser, and it's only decrypted when it reaches the intended recipient or when the person you sent the file to downloads it. In other words, even the provider of the service, even Keybase, when they're storing your files, they can't decrypt the file even if there's something like a court warrant saying you have to decrypt the file. They're able to say, actually, that's technically impossible. Which is a huge selling point for services like this and Signal and the, these Absolutely. types of chat apps. Yeah. Just like we can't see it. it yes. And it, so not only does it kind of let you off the, the, the warrant problem, it also means that it, it's like that T-shirt that I love to wear for the Naked Security Live videos that says, dance like no one's watching, encrypt like everyone is. If you encrypt stuff, even if you think that it might not be necessary. And even if you are a completely trusted third party to both other people who are involved in the transaction, it just means that you don't have to worry, is there something in there that I should have encrypted but I forgot? In other words, it kind of, it solves all of those problems. And it means that you can have a cloud service where even though you're using somebody else's computer to do the storage and using somebody else's network to cause it to be transmitted, you still have that the, the same strength of encryption as you like as if you encrypted it onto a USB stick and then went and met the other person and put it straight into their hand. But now we get to the we get to the slip betwixt the cup and the lip. Yes. And this is not to, this is not to pick on Keybase, it's just that this was an interesting story. And Zoom's response, they actually came back to our article and they gave a whole lot of extra advice that we're able to put in the article. They seemed quite pleased to see the story told in the way it was. And they were apparently happy with the researchers who found it. They paid them a bug bounty. 
uh, CV 2021-23827 if you're interested in looking into this. Basically, the problem comes that when you have an end-to-end encryption toolkit, the assumption, or if you like, that the, the explicit promise is the data will be encrypted once it's left your device until it reaches the other person's device at least. But there's an implicit expectation that if you type in a message and then send it, that the message won't be stored on your device at all because you're you're submitting the message into the system and so it should only exist in memory for the time that it's being sent. Or if it's an image that you've brought in, you may have an unencrypted copy on a USB stick, you upload it into the file locker service and then you remove the USB stick you expect that the file was encrypted as it left the USB stick and was injected into the file locker system. You don't expect to have unencrypted versions of the file left behind. And these researchers, they looked in temporary file folders for the app, and they looked in cache folders maintained by the operating system on Windows and on Mac, and I think on Linux, and they found that this app was not had not been scrupulous or the operating system had not been careful in removing temporary files that weren't supposed to be left behind. Keybase have a thing called exploding messages that after a certain amount of time, they're just meant to be removed from everything. So they're removed from the, the encrypted form is removed and they don't appear at either end. Um, but it's not much of an exploding message if you've left a, a an exact copy of the image file that was part of the message in a cache or a temporary folder. And sadly, that's what happened. It's an easy blunder to make and one that as a programmer you have to take great care does not happen by design or by accident why have this caching function to begin with in in an app like this like the, it, that should be kind of table stakes that you're not going to cache things right i think the answer is it depends now the problem is even if you just keep stuff in memory there's a chance in modern operating systems, which operate a thing called virtual memory, where if, if your program's got memory that it's not really using at the moment, and some other program is in desperate need for memory, the operating system will take some RAM pages, some blocks of memory that you're not using much at the moment, copy them to disk, lend the memory to another program for a while, and then when you need to ac- when you access that memory, which could be in minutes or hours' time, then the next time you access it, your access will be a bit slower because the operating system will go, oh, hang on, <coughs> I hid that in the cupboard. Let me go and fetch it for you. And so seamlessly, you think you have this giant stash of memory that's available to you all the time. But actually, the operating system is kind of deciding whether it's immediately available or whether it's swapped out to the page file or a backing store. So even with the best one in the world, when you're allocating memory in a program, if you're not careful how you allocate it, the operating system might put it into its paging file or its swap file anyway. And you need to know the techniques you can use for stuff that absolutely must not be swapped out under any circumstance. So you might say, this memory, I want it to be non-pageable. So for example, if you're storing a password temporarily, you don't want the risk that it accidentally ends up in the swap file where a crook might find it later or a rogue system administrator or whoever. And the other problem is, particularly for files like, say, images and videos, 
it's quite common for operating systems or programming libraries where you you know you don't write a program say to load png files yourself you might use a programming library and it might have a feature that goes you know what people love to look at photographs and every time they look at them there's a huge amount of work in decoding and decompressing them and working out what they look like and people like to see a thumbnail before they open the file so when i open the image for the first time I'll make a little thumbnail, I'll send that to the app, but I'll keep a copy for the next guy or for next time the app comes along. So sometimes the operating system or the programming library might help you. And, you know, particularly things and search search engines on your laptop as well might want to know what's in a file. And they might go, oh, I'll remember that file. It was encrypted, but now I can see it. I can see that it's all to do with taxation. So next time you uh, next time you search for taxation i'll know that that file might be of interest so even if the exact copy of a file is not retained the operating system might if you are not careful and you're not very strict in how you open it up and how you access it might decide to help you in case you need that file again and that's things like cached files thumbnails search indexes you know, permanent objects that might come from files that you expected only to use temporarily. And then when you delete the file that you are actually working with, the temporary file might stay behind if you are not careful. So I suppose one thing you could do is encrypt those temporary files too, right? Yes. If you if you know that, say you're, you're a file locker service and you think I'm going to, this person's put in a USB stick, there's a file on there that's unencrypted. That's fair enough. That's their choice. I'm going to load that file into memory but it's quite a big file. If the transmission fails, I might need to send it again later. Then either you have to go back to the original source if that doesn't work for the hassle of the user, or if you're going to make a temporary copy of it, encrypt it the same way that you would the data that you were going to shovel into the upload service. In other words, treat the temporary file as past the end where end-to-end encryption starts. And that way, if the file does get left behind and someone does recover it, it's just so much shredded cabbage. And by the way, that also means that the last tip for programmers over and above, make sure you don't allocate memory that can be paged to swap file if that is not what you intend. Make sure that you don't open files and leave them at the whim of caching, thumbnailing or indexing functions if that is not what you intend. And also go out of your way to make sure that your program or your suite of programs clean up after themselves if they crash while they're running. Because you've all probably experienced this where you're running a program and it crashes and later you go and find, you know, particularly like a video editing program and you think, golly, I'm very short on disk space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you go digging around and you find there's a giant temporary file. And when you sort of go digging through it, you find it's got the first five minutes, the middle 10 minutes of this movie and five minutes from a movie you made a month ago. And you think, golly, I had no idea that stuff was left behind. So if you're writing a program, particularly one that claims to take security seriously, you need to run that program in an environment where if it does crash, either you or the operating system are very likely to notice and can go and make sure that it hasn't left behind something that it ought not to have. Wipe it out. All right. Keybase, secure messaging, fixes photo leaking bug patch now. It's on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It is time for technology etymology. And today we're talking about online shopping. Did you know 
There's a term for leaving something in your virtual shopping cart without buying it. Cart abandonment is a real problem for many online retailers with an average of 62.3% cart abandonment rate across the board, according to analytics firm FireClick. I don't know about you, Paul, but I, I don't like the feeling of leaving something in my cart. I like to clear it out or buy it. I don't like coming back to my cart and seeing stuff in there from months ago that I forgot to buy because you can accidentally buy it when you add other stuff to your cart. My understanding, Doug, is that that term actually comes from the old days when it was customary to go into a shop. And cart abandonment is actually a very different problem in a, in a physical store. It's when someone when the queues get too long at the tills and somebody's got a full shopping trolley and they just get the hump with the shop and they walk out and they abandon their cart right there because A, it's blocking up the queue for everybody else and B, if it's got perishable items in it, the shop has got to get them back, has got to decide, can it can it dare to put them back in the freezer legally? It's rude. Or do they actually have to get thrown away? And it, so it's a real problem. And that is, that's one of the things that you scrupulously try to avoid by understanding if you're a manager of a big supermarket. Like you make sure you've got an emergency system for opening new tills. And, and you know, if someone looks like they're going to abandon, you kind of, you kind of get them somewhere where at least, at least you can take over the trolley and go and put all the stuff back on the shelves and not just leave it there blocking the place up. So I guess it's very different. It's actually more of a danger to you in virtual shopping uh, because, like you said, it's just sitting there waiting for somebody to click it later. Remember we spoke about uh, on the podcast not long ago about the it was something from our managed threat response team, if you remember, where they investigated an attack where the crooks had run around the network going to computer after computer, trying to buy gift cards from account after account after account after account. So they'd go in and they'd try and do password resets on 20 accounts on each user's computer, one after the other after the other. And then every account they got a reset for, they'd quickly log in and go buy a gift card, buy a gift card, buy a gift card, because it's a very easy way of getting cashable, outable money. And it seems that a lot of people in this company had done the right thing and they had not put their credit cards on file. And when they came back in after the event, after we'd investigated, they reported that in their own accounts, there were all these gift cards lined up for purchase. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, you, you wonder, I wonder if any people didn't notice and they accidentally bought a gift card for the crooks the next time they were ordering their carrots and onions. Yeah could have happened it's the worst too you get the, then you get the email it's like hey you left this stuff in your cart are you sure you don't want to buy it like oh god leave me alone i didn't know just just empty your carts unless you're a crook that's that's the if the crooks had emptied the people's carts they probably wouldn't have it's it's they could they could have gone on for longer with with that scam but uh the cart abandonment was what ultimately caught them. Well, no, no, no. The actually, the cart abandonment people noticed afterwards. Oh, okay. Fortunately, it had already been put to bed. Then it was that was just an indication of how much money in oh, this particular I thought that, attack I thought that's they what could tipped have them off. Okay, all right. No, no. What, I, what tipped them off, I think, was other activity. That's why they called in the the Sophos uh, managed threat response guys to have a look around. Uh, it was just something that, if you like, made me much more determined to persuade people not to put their credit card on file. Not just because the company you put it on file with might have a data breach. Maybe you trust that company implicitly. It just makes it 
that little bit easier for somebody who's got access to your account just for a moment, like when they pick up your phone when you've left it lying somewhere, to buy something like a gift card Mm -hmm. where they get the money. And as soon as they spend the gift card, good luck getting it back. Exactly. Okay. Naked Security Live. Another great Naked Security Live video every Friday on Facebook, as if the prospect of copyright infringement wasn't enough of a legal minefield. Now we need to be on the lookout for copyright infringement scams. So how do those work, Paul? Actually, Doug, before I start, let me say that some people go, oh, I, I, I'm not available on Friday evening UK time, afternoon East Coast time or whatever. If to watch Only on there was a way to watch them later. Or they go, I don't like Facebook, even though you can actually watch the video without even having an account, let alone logging in. Uh, we also publish them on YouTube for those who prefer that later. And there you can speed up viewing if you want to save time. And uh, there are subtitles as well. So yeah, copyright scams, they're not new, but they there seems to have been an uptick lately. And we actually received one uh, at one of our Sophos accounts just last week, which is what prompted me to look into this particular scam. Uh, basically, anyone who uses social media regularly, particularly you know, if you're a creator or an influencer or whatever the name is, you know, somebody who uses social media either as a revenue stream or you know, have a company account that you use to keep in touch with your customers and your prospects, you know that it's kind of important not to lose access to your account. And you know that copyright infringement claims are kind of something that that kind of goes with the course, if you like. Because even if you're scrupulous, sooner or later, somebody is likely to complain, oh, I think they stole that image from here, or I think you're using that mu- I think they didn't pay the license for that music, or, you know, something like that. And they make a copyright infringement claim to the social media platform, and the social media platform, if the complaint is made correctly, is duty-bound to contact you and say, okay, what do you say about this? It's like, that they're, they're supposed to try and mediate between, if you like, the plaintiff and the defendant to get this sorted out. Either maybe you can remove the material you can show that yeah you're you're using it fairly um or you can pay a fee or whatever it is you know that if you're regular on social media that when you get a genuine copyright infringement notice you can't just ignore it because then what happens is the other person will probably prevail on the balance of probabilities and if that keeps happening you're either going to get your account locked or worse shut down and if you need, if it's if it's somewhere people go uh, to find out about your business, not a good look. You know, this account has been shut <laughs> yeah. down. Um, and you know, even if you just use the account to stay in touch with family and friends, very important these days when in many countries you can't go uh, visiting. Uh, you know, it, it's a pretty great big hassle to get your account unlocked and get it back. So. The social networks have their obligation under, particularly in the US, under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And the crooks are happy to steam in and use this as yet another reason to trick you into thinking that you have to do something. And, you know, we've all got used to email scams where, oh, you have something wrong with your bank account. You must react within 24 hours. You know, oh, there's a free iPhone. You have just five minutes to stake your claim, etc., etc. Everyone knows to look out for those. But on social media, you kind of know, well, copyright infringement notices... You have to at least do something. So it kind of feels like you're doing the right thing if you respond or you react or you click through or you visit the link or you press the button to, you know, uh, counteract the claim or whatever it is. So the 
the crooks love this kind of stuff and it seems that the platform on which they have been most vigorous lately it's not the only one but the one where this really seems to be a big thing is instagram and i'm presuming that's because you know it's all about presenting your brand in a beautiful way it's all about photos and we know that photos come with their own copyright issues and it's a messaging platform so what's more natural perhaps than to get a message from somebody who claims to be instagram and here's here's an example uh, here's one that, um, that we report this is from a couple of years ago we've detected contents in your account that will violate copyright laws your account will be de deactivated within 48 hours unless you provide feedback we respect copyrights and take care to protect copyrights it's not very good english mm -hmm. but you know it's not that bad here's one that here's one that we received this, this is the one we received recently this is a little less believable but it could easily be tidied up we noticed incidents on your account that violate our copyright you must defend against copyright otherwise your account will be disabled within 24 hours and you know there's in that case there was an account you could go to and they'd given it a believable name ig verified security the good news is with those guys they had they they couldn't get their encryption certificate right on their fake website. So it was obviously an unencrypted site with the wrong domain name. They had loads of spelling mistakes. So that was easy to spot. And the other dead giveaway is, firstly, Instagram won't contact you on Instagram itself. And secondly, these guys, they, they usually create accounts with a, a name, you know, it has, say, Instagram in it or the text Facebook, if it's on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And they create an account that sounds right. So these guys, they were IG verified security. They had 13,000 followers, but clearly those had been, how can I put this, purchased because they had zero people following them and they had done zero posts. So, you know, again, stop, think, connect. Okay, so what can what can people do? This is bad, but manageable. Okay, the, well, the example I said, there, there, there were some signs from, from the Instagram presence itself that the crooks had an obviously bogus domain. It didn't have an HTTPS padlock. They had an account with 13,000 uh, followers, but they weren't following everyone. It's a new account. So obviously you know, that, that was all specious. But my tips in general for people who do rely on social media and would not like to get locked out of their accounts... Uh, either through a legitimate copyright infringement or through a scam like this. Tip number one is go and learn the ropes. In other words, don't wait until you get a message saying, hey, there's something weird with copyright on your account, and then think, oh, golly, I've got a limited time to respond, and you feel like you're rushed. Go and learn the ropes. So go to whatever the social networks you use. Go and find out how do you initiate a uh, you know, a copyright takedown request if you wanted to. I'm not saying you do, but go and find out the process. From That tells you what the other person would have done to kick one off if it were real. It will tell you what happens in the middle while the negotiations are going on, and it will tell you how what you have to do to resolve it. And go to Instagram.com or Facebook.com or Twitter.com or whatever the site is and find out from the horse's mouth exactly how their copyright challenge process works, how you defend yourself, how you get out from a lockdown, whatever it is. That way, if you do get a copyright infringement notice, whether it's a real one or a fake one, you've already got some idea of what you're getting yourself into. So you won't get you won't get tricked or pressurized into doing something that's wrong. The second tip, we've said it before, and I'll say it again because it's a great one. It works for all sorts of phishing scams. If there's a crisis, 
if there's something you need to do urgently, if there's that special offer that you need to click now, don't click the link in the message. That's a very bad way of finding out whether the message is legit, because if it isn't legit, you just end up straight in the hands of the crooks. So if Instagram were to contact you, my understanding is they don't use Instagram messages. They contact the account listed in the email address for that account. But of course, the crooks use email for these scams as well. Uh, but the thing is, if you don't click the link in an email or an instant message or an SMS or whatever it is, or don't phone the phone number in the email for the emergency, then you can't get caught out because it means you're going to find your own way there based on information you determined previously. That's why my tip number one is learn the ropes. Where would you need to go? Then you don't have to click the link and you completely circumvent the fishes. Tip number three is if you if you are a you know so an influencer or a creator or somebody who actually uses social media as a, a way of generating your income, then obviously your account really is important to you. Presumably you have you know friends and acquaintances who are in the industry. Some of them will have gone through genuine copyright infringements. If it hasn't happened to you, go and ask someone that has had the experience and find out, ask them for screenshots, ask them what they did, ask them how it played out, ask them how they resolved the situation. Don't wait until the crooks are pestering you and telling you how it works. Go and find out from someone who knows, because, you know, as I said on the Naked Security Live video, the first time's the worst time, and someone who's already gone through this properly will be able to share information with you that will stop you falling for fake ones in future. And the last tip, slightly tangential but very important is that and I'm saying this because we get a lot of emails like this and naked security is be very wary of unsolicited advice or assistance being offered for copyright infringement so they're not outright scams like we are Instagram you have to do this but we get loads of messages from people. They're always, they always have a fancy title like attorney at law or senior solicitor or something like that. And they say, we represent a range of customers for intellectual property. We see that you've misused some of their copyrighted material on your website. Contact us and we can resolve the matter. So it's just like that beg bounty story we told the other day. You know, the crooks who, instead of using a proper bug bounty program, they email and say, hey, we found a bug in your software. Send us $20 and we will tell you where it is. And this is exactly the same idea, right? It's somebody going, I'm a lawyer. I represent someone that you have infringed against. It's fairly easy to sort this out. Contact us. Resist the temptation to accept help from someone that you didn't ask for help in the first place because they're all, at very best, you're probably going to end up buying some kind of service that you don't want and didn't need. That's probably the best outcome. Yeah, and I can tell you that the, the that third tip, ask someone who's been there, someone who's, I was in the media for the better part of a decade, as someone who's been on the defensive end of some of these claims, the most surefire way to make sure you stay out of trouble is to, if you didn't create it or you didn't pay for it, then don't use it. And if you did pay for it, make sure you have a paper trail or a receipt of some, some sort of this because, because the, the copyright infringement claim is going to say, we think you are using this uh, illegally. You have 24 hours to respond. You need to respond then with some sort of paperwork or some sort of proof that you created it yourself. And then you're, if not, your site will be taken down or ads will be put on your 
YouTube video or something like that. So just don't use things that aren't yours. That's the most surefire way because yeah. it gets real sticky. And if you do get one of these things, and maybe maybe it does have some truth, maybe it is genuine. Like I said, don't click. If there's a handy link, you know, it's like those those fake invoices you get yeah. from iTunes or Netflix or whatever. Hey, we build you modest amount. $9.95 for a movie brackets that you didn't watch. Click here to contest the charge. And don't do that. You, If you are a user of one of those services, like if you're the user of, if you're an Instagram user, make sure you know where, how their copyright system works and where you would go so you can use a bookmark to get there yourself. And that way, it doesn't matter what's in the email. Even if it's a genuine email with a genuine link in it, if you never click the link, you can't click a fake one. Yep, that's great advice. So that's uh, Naked Security Live. Beware copyright scams on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. Okay, it's that time of the show. We're at the Oh No. This is from Vox Popsicle on Reddit with a great title of this story. (laughs) I didn't notice that when you showed that to me. Vox Popsicle. Quite cool. And it's called, Why Do Monitors Keep Breaking Every Monday? Vox Popsicle writes, Right after the Y2K non-event, I was working in a help desk for a fairly large company. The company had a surprisingly kind corporate culture and pretty good morale. People were allowed to decorate their cubicles pretty much as they saw fit. One employee in a prestigious department called on a Monday and told us that her monitor had failed. Flat screens were a lot more expensive back then, so nobody had multiple monitors. I grabbed a spare and was at her cubicle within five minutes. Her cube was like a greenhouse. She must have had 30 different potted plants in a modest cube, flowers, spider plants, little bamboo. It would have driven me nuts to work in this crowded little grove, but it smelled like a clean forest after the rain, and she was obviously proud of it. The monitor was dead as disco, wouldn't even show me a power LED. I carefully moved four or five plants and swapped in the new one. Happy user, closed ticket. One week later, the ticket reopened on the next Monday morning. Statistically, it is certainly possible for a beat-up spare screen to fail, but it isn't likely. I grabbed a shiny new monitor, tested it at my desk, and installed it. As I swapped cables, I asked her what had happened. I just shut it off. I didn't even touch it. They never do, Doug. They never they do. Never, I never touch nothing, yeah. Your Honor. <laughs> <laughs> so two monitors failing at the same time on the same day of the same week for one user. I verified that she didn't have a heater in her cube. No other users had seen any issues or heard anything. So the next Monday, early, I was camped out in her cube with an iced coffee and suspicion as my team. I watched her start up the PC, turn on the monitor, and head out for her own coffee. All good so far. Uh, Vox Popsicle just wanted the clean forest smell. Exactly. I, I knew it. Yeah, I, I couldn't work in this place, but it smells I, so I good. I don't see why they need... Yeah, I couldn't work here, but I love hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> so the PC boots up properly, the monitor's working, and she comes back with a coffee and a watering can. I looked at the, uh, oh, I looked at the three potted plants on the shelf above her monitor and stopped her. She'd been slightly overwatering those plants once a week. I don't know why it hadn't killed the monitor before this, but she didn't use a power strip and apparently the main circuit breakers weren't sensitive enough. User educated, problem solved, ticket reclosed. So people, please don't put any anything that's even close to liquid above your above near anything. Right? We've all had these instances where, you know, you tip a beer over on your laptop keyboard and that's it. But dripping plant water, that'll do it. It certainly will. And I imagine it's uh, it's full of, uh, you know, things like salts and sugars and whatnot that make it super conductive as well. Yeah. 
It's not, it's not distilled water coming out of there, is it? Mm-hmm. My uh, eldest son, who's now seven years old, when he was about two, I watched him waddle over to where my wife's computer was sitting on a chair with an iPhone on top of it and her cup of coffee on the arm of the chair and she herself nowhere in sight. And he pushed the cup of coffee over onto the MacBook and the iPhone and destroyed them both. That was about, that was a $2,000 day. I almost said a chip off the old block yeah. until I realized that would be rather uncomplimentary to no, you. No, I, I am mortified of even the prospect of ruining electronics like that. I, I, I would be so embarrassed and angry with myself if I ever, I have never, ever ruined electronics like that. You mean you've, it's always been beer, never tea. I did spill a beer onto a, a DJ's karaoke monitor once and the monitor shorted out. But that was the extent you of did my. Not go back to that club ever again. <laughs> I gave the guy two hundred bucks. It was this old CRT monitor, and and uh, it was a year that he should not have still had this giant CRT monitor. So I slipped him two hundred bucks, and I said, "I'm sorry. Go get yourself a new one." Did the right thing. Yeah, uh, I think you. If you if you'd come out with that argument, you should have upgraded to an LCD by yeah. now. I don't think that would have been the moral all the legal high ground for you at exactly. all. Exactly. So you did the right thing. Well done, Thank Buck. you very much. And, uh, and I bet you've never done it again either. No, never. I would never drink a beer. Live and live. you gotta, you got to keep it below the monitor. Um, if you like that, oh, no, great. If not, send us your own. You can get us Naked Security on all your favorite social channels. Uh, you can leave an anonymous comment in any one of our articles, or you can send it to tips at sophos.com. And a new bonus way to get your... Oh no to us. Uh, Kim is on Reddit. Her username is Oh no, it's Kim. So that's about all for us this week. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth. This has been the Naked Security Podcast. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stay, stay secure. Wow. Ten bucks. I can get a pizza for that.